Living Time by Dr. Morris Nickel. Passing Time and Time Itself. In Chapter 4, we've made it to Chapter 4. This is only our 18th recording. <laughs> you know, I think that's really fantastic when you consider this material is very difficult. This is like wading through molasses in winter. This is tough stuff. But maybe it's not tough to you. Maybe you just put it on zony and disappear. I don't know. But for me, it's tedious. I mean, it's tough. I mean, I get the concepts, but it's tough stuff. If the world, beyond its natural aspect, is first of all four-dimensional, then we must be in some way four-dimensional. This makes sense, because we're here in the world. If we understand that man and the universe cannot be taken separately. But we don't really understand that. Hopefully, we're trying to understand it, trying to understand that there's no way that man and universe can be taken separately because we are an integral part of this universe, and this universe is an integral part of us. How could you possibly exist without the universe? And you may think the universe could exist without you, and it probably could without you personally, but I don't know that the universe would exist without us and our purpose, our calling, our destiny. Because it appears that the universe, or part of this universe, or a very large part of it, is about growing us, is about educating us. It's like, what good would a school be if it didn't have any students? It doesn't really matter where the students come from, or who they are, or what they are. A school is made a school by students, and students are made students by a school. So it seems to me that man and the universe cannot be taken separately. How do we conceive ourselves? Mostly we don't. Mostly we take ourselves for granted. But he's asking us this question, and we should apply ourselves to it. We seem bodies, having three dimensions existing in the moment of time called present. Do you exist any place else besides present? You probably exist in someone's memory. You may exist in someone's imagination about the future. I'm going to talk to so-and-so tomorrow or next week. You might exist tomorrow or next week in the present. This is the appearance of things. If we begin to conceive ourselves four-dimensionally, we must leave this appearance of things and penetrate into a deeper realm of thought and feeling, which must inevitably change the feeling of ourselves, the ordinary feelings of I. I don't know when you discovered that you were a boy or a girl when you were a child and that you weren't like the opposite sex. But that changed your feeling of I. Probably when you got to school, your feeling of I changed. The first time your mother or your father was displeased with you, your feeling of I changed. So there are a lot of things that change the feeling of I, our ordinary feelings of I. The point is that a different understanding of time and a different feeling of I are linked together. If you have a different understanding of time, you must necessarily have a different understanding of I. It makes perfect sense. For example, when you figure out that you're going to die, when you get the concept that people die, it's like that changes your feeling of I. When you get the concept that you're damageable, that you could cease to be in a body if you walked out in front of a car, or if you get hit by a bus, or if you fell off a high building. These are very real things that we come to understand in some way in childhood. Usually, we come to grips with these things. And our feeling of I changes. We don't feel ourselves indestructible. 
you have a major accident and you suddenly don't think that you're indestructible. We don't feel like we're supermen anymore. The point is that a different understanding of time and a different feeling of I are linked together. All that has been said so far about different levels of consciousness is connected with this view. So everything that he said so far has really been to get us to the point where we can see that if we have a different understanding of time, our feeling of I has to change. If we have a different feeling of I, it is somehow our understanding of time has to change. What he's saying is that usually the way it works is we have a different experience of time and then our feeling of I changes. Our feeling of I doesn't change and then we have a different feeling of time or a different understanding of time. Let's follow some reflections made by Ospensky on the question of a different understanding of life gained through a different understanding of time. He divides consciousness into four forms. He regards our ordinary consciousness as a particular instance of consciousness which he connects with a particular feeling of I and our ordinary conception of the world as a particular instance of the conception of the world. That probably doesn't make a lot of sense at the moment, but maybe it'll make more sense later when we fill in the other three. The first or most elementary form of consciousness he terms latent consciousness, similar to the instincts. What he's saying is this is the lowest, basest form of consciousness. It can't really be called consciousness. I mean, it can be called consciousness. A dog obviously is conscious that it's alive, or else it couldn't run afraid or cower or run up to someone. It obviously know that it's hungry or whatever. So, But it's an instinctive thing. It's not really a very high form of consciousness. The second, he terms simple consciousness, in which flashes of thought may occur. This isn't very flattering. <laughs> yeah, flashes of thought may occur, as in animals possessing complex organization. A dog may perhaps touch our level of thought momentarily. That is not very flattering either. Such a flash of thought would be a higher form of consciousness for the dog. The third he identifies chiefly with reasoning, our ordinary power of thought. The fourth he calls self-consciousness, the beginning of a higher consciousness. That comes from tertium organum. He connects the fourth form of consciousness, which is not necessarily the highest. Now, see, that's just it. Oh, well, what do you mean it's not necessarily the highest? Well, he's just dealing with four states of consciousness. He's not dealing with the whole spectrum of consciousness. If you're dealing with the colors in the rainbow, you're not dealing with all of the spectrum of light. You're just dealing with the colors in the rainbow, just that part of the spectrum. So he says he connects the fourth form of consciousness, which is not necessarily the highest, with another perception of time. The interesting thing to me about this is how many people over how many thousands of years, or hundreds of years if you prefer, connect this higher state of consciousness with a different perception of time. Like it just keeps recurring. So maybe there's something to it. Referring to the passage of the Apocalypse, Revelation chapter 10, verse 6, where the angel swears that there shall be time no longer. He observes that there are states of the spirit where time disappears. In this very thing, in the change of the time sense, the beginning of the fourth form of consciousness is expressed. We recall that Tennyson reached a new feeling of I, or another self-consciousness, and this was accompanied by a change in the time sense. He was no longer located in that time in which we feel ourselves ordinarily to exist. If we say that he became aware of higher space, in which death 
does not exist, and in which he discovered a new form of himself, we must attempt to grasp what is meant by this term. A four-dimensional world is one of higher space. Our customary consciousness establishes for us a lower space of three dimensions, moving in time. So our three dimensions we see as moving in time, or as time moving and us kind of stationary. It depends on how you choose to look at it. Theoretically, time is a dimension that it's necessary to add to the known three of space. But psychologically experienced, higher space means, to begin with, a complete alteration in the feeling of what one is. Again, this isn't going to make sense immediately, but it slowly begins to sink in. And if you're one of those wonderful, intelligent people who already got it all, why are you listening to me? Tennyson no longer felt himself a momentary creature running in time, but something timeless, permanent. He must have been in some kind of a different state of consciousness, a higher state of consciousness, in order to feel himself permanent, because we feel ourselves permanent, but it is not a real feeling of permanence, because it is so thin. It's like tissue paper. You touch it at all, and it tears. You look in the mirror, and you can see that you are not the child that you were where the person, you may be able to look in the mirror and say, well, I am the same person I was the last time I looked in the mirror, if you look in the mirror every day. But then how did this happen? <laughs> you know, one day you look in the mirror and you go, what happened? Who is that looking back at me? Well, it happened while you slept. He caught sight of the fact that there is something above the level of his usual state. That's what gave Tennyson this different feeling of I. Can we say that there is anything new in the conception of an aspect of the world in higher space? Let's take one of the earliest definitions of God. He's defined as the beginning and end. A really bizarre way to define God. Most people would define God as powerful or loving or whatever, but the beginning and the end. And think about that. It's like, well, that's interesting. Beginning and end for us are necessarily separated by the passage of time. <laughs> beginning and end, unless it's like, it's over as soon as it starts, beginning and end are the same, it's separated by a passage of time. There's time in between the beginning and the end. There's time between your birth and your death. The coexistence of beginning and end immediately introduces us to the idea of higher space. For if we take time itself as a dimension, the beginning and end of any event or of any person must exist in this dimension. It's got to exist in time. We can, of course, understand that the beginning and end of a stick coexist in the space of three dimensions. So if I hold up a pencil, which I don't... Oh, here it is. So if I hold up this pencil, we can see that the beginning of it and the end of it exist together right now in the present moment. And that's about as good as it gets for us <laughs> when it comes to things like that. So that's obvious to the senses. We can see that. It's very clear that the beginning and the end of this pencil, or basically this stick is all right here in our space. We can see the beginning and end together. Okay, But the time dimension is not obvious to sense. This definition of God does not refer to qualities, and I think that we are justified in saying that it deals with dimensions beyond those accessible to the senses. God, or higher reality, lies in the direction of dimensions above those known to us. So we know about the first, second, and third dimension. We know a little bit about the fourth dimension, time. How we know time is basically how it interacts with our concept of space. The definition turns our thought in the direction of higher dimensions. Let's take some examples. 
God, according to an ancient Orphic saying, holding the beginning, middle, and end of all existence. That comes from Plato. God is withdrawn from both ends of time, for his life is not time, but eternity, the archetype of time. And in eternity, there is no past and future, only present. That comes from Philo. I am yesterday, today, and tomorrow. There is not a day devoid of that which belongs to it. The present time is the path which I have opened. Again, this isn't making sense, because we are not accustomed to think like this. For us, this is like Tigger logic or koans. Huh? That doesn't make sense. Because our reasoning is based on the senses. And now we're asked to see something beyond the senses, higher than the senses. And that, incidentally, the present time is the path which I have opened, comes from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Coming to the Old Testament, I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things which are not yet done. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10. And in the New Testament, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Revelation chapter 22, verse 13. We also find God defined as that which is, which was, and that which is to come. That's in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. An order of existence above our natural comprehension is clearly referred to. This is not our natural comprehension. We're having trouble with this. If you're not having trouble with this, you're asleep. An order of existence of which Eckhart says, no, not Eckhart Tolle, Meister Eckhart, both the first day and the last are happening at the present instant yonder. Again, a great expansion of our understanding is demanded by these phrases. And if you don't have a great expansion of your understanding, then these phrases aren't making much sense to you. By no logical argument can I grasp the idea that the first day and the last have simultaneous existence. Unless I look at this pencil and say this pencil, you know, this stick. See, but it's still right here. It can be perceived by the senses. But as soon as something isn't perceived by the senses and time isn't, we don't perceive time. We perceive the passage of time through our dimension, our dimensions. Nor can I understand that the beginning and end of my life coexist. We just don't see it. To reach such a standpoint, my ordinary time sense must disappear, and with it, my ordinary sense of myself. Well, you can see that if you could see the beginning and the end of your life coexisting, something will have had to have happened to your consciousness. Something will have had to happen. Now, we know, we've heard that People at the moment of death, they'll see their life, their entire life flash before them. Their entire life. And how long does that take? How? What's that about? See, how do you get your mind around that? That's not how we experience things. For this reason, we can understand how many writers such as Kierkegaard, Eckhart, Swedenborg, and others belonging to far earlier periods have divided men according to their understanding of time or have spoken about the necessity of overcoming the illusion of time in order to understand our lives aright. So they talk about it, but we don't understand it. Let's think again for a moment how we ordinarily understand time. We certainly don't understand time as a higher dimension of space. If you think you do, I will dispel with that illusion presently. We associate time with movement as the turning of the hands of the clock or the apparent rising or setting of the sun, or we think of it as change in appearance. You look at yourself and you say, well, my appearance has changed Time has passed. I'm getting older. As the changing seasons, or the growth and decay of the body, or as something that splits life into past, present, and future. 
so we see it as movement. Following the evidence of our senses, which of course is pretty much all we've got, apart from ideas, and these ideas are not connected with the senses, so it's very difficult for us. Following the evidence of our senses, we believe that the present exists, but that the past and the future are non-existent and incapable of existing. How can the past and the future exist now in the present? It can't happen. Where could they exist? In what room or space? It's like, what day is it in the bathroom? What day is it in the kitchen? What day is it in the dining room? Well, it's today. It's right now. Because that's what we know. One of the peculiarities of our senses is that they work in this single moment of time called now. They all work right now. They don't work in some other time, which is not any real now to our ordinary experience in which you read these lines. So right now is the time that our senses work in the time that we're talking about this. The time in which I wrote them seems to you to have vanished into nothingness. That was back in the 50s. Where are they? <laughs> They're gone. What is this nothingness? In this single moment of time called the present, in which you read the sentence, the visible world appears before you. You cannot see the existence of anything a moment ago or a moment hence, and because you cannot see it, you do not believe in its possibility. Please don't argue with this. You don't believe in its possibility. You might like to believe in its possibility. You might wish to believe in its possibility. But the truth is, you do not believe in its possibility, because you can't see it. Therefore, you confine the sense of your existence to this single moment of time, and to this you limit your notion of the existing, what exists. What exists is right here, right now. If it's not here right now, it doesn't exist. Meaning right here, right now is in these dimensions of these three dimensions, and we'll also include time, but we're not really looking at it like a fourth dimension. We're just kind of looking at it as just this little point, just this little flashlight point right now on this experience. When you think about that, and you should think about that, it seems very limiting. Imagine for a moment a merry-go-round. A merry-go-round in the dark, absolutely pitch black. But above the merry-go-round is a spotlight. But the spotlight has these little barn doors on either side, so that the light is very strict. It's just this sliver. And as the merry-go-round goes round, all you see is what this sliver of light reveals to you, nothing else. That is how I see this whole thing with time. It's like we're limited by this sliver of light that we call the present moment. Yet there's this whole merry-go-round going here. It's going, but we are only seeing this one part. So what happened to we can't even distinguish that this is a horse in this little sliver of light. We just see this something go by. And we see enough of them go by. Maybe we put together some kind of an image. And how accurate could it be, really? You think about it. So... That's just an idea that I had about this, and I wanted to share it because I thought maybe it will help you. This is how I visualized it. Of course, it'll fall apart because time isn't, at least we hope it's not circular. Maybe it is. We don't know. We know so little about it, really. We know so little about it because all we can see is this little sliver that the present moment reveals to us. What happened to that part of the horse that just went by? Where is the part of the horse that hasn't come yet? That's in the future, and the part that just went by is in the past. So if we're standing here looking at this, and the merry-go-round is going counterclockwise, is going counterclockwise, then we're seeing the past on the right-hand side. We actually aren't seeing it. We're calling the past the right-hand side. We're calling the future the left-hand side. If it's going clockwise, then it's just the opposite. And we're calling the left the future and the right the past. 
And then this present moment is this little sliver of light that reveals whatever is on that merry-go-round. Interesting, isn't it? We confine the sense of our existence to this single moment of time, and to this we limit our notion of the existing. Also, you must see that you only exist in this flash of light. You don't exist before it or after it, because this is your consciousness. Just this little sliver of light is your consciousness. Are you starting to get how important expanding your consciousness is? Okay, good. You believe that you exist now and only now. And if you think the souls of the dead remain alive, you believe that they exist in this now and only in this now, in this moment of time in which you find yourself existing. And you believe that they travel along with you in the passing time that is our common experience. Yes, it is true. But these are not things that we think about often on our own. And what I want to know is, who does? Nobody I know. I don't know people like this. I don't know people who talk like this, who think like this. Well, maybe I do. Maybe I am beginning to think like this. Maybe the merry-go-round is this kind of thinking like this. Since it rarely occurs to any of us that the nature of our senses makes what we call the present moment, and the world as we know it, we suppose that the only possible present moment is our present moment. The only possible thing on this merry-go-round is what we see in this flash of light. What else could there be? We can't see anything else. We can't be aware of anything else. There is only that. As I said, this analogy will break down very quickly if you try to work it too hard. It's just to give you a kind of a feel or a taste or a sense of this. So we reason from this basis about our present moment. To imagine that our present moment is only one point in an infinitely larger present seems absurd. But we can imagine it as the merry-go-round, because that's not infinite. We know that it has a beginning and an end, and it keeps going around, and there are just so many horses or whatever on it. And so, theoretically, we could perceive the whole thing eventually. But if the merry-go-round is infinite, well, <laughs> tilt, we're done. It seems absurd. The term existence implies a standing forth. What stands forth to the sense we call the existing? What stands forth of the merry-go-round in the light? Whatever stands forth, we say that exists. But if it doesn't stand forth, it doesn't exist, does it? For us. If it's not standing forth in the light, if the light hasn't made it stand forth, it doesn't exist for us, because we can't see it. The term, however, implies that not everything stands forth, and we know quite well that the senses show us only a part of the totality of things. As regards time, they only show us the world standing forth in the present moment. Let's call the world the merry-go-round. We cannot see into time itself. We cannot see into this fourth dimension. The world, in other parts of time, if we begin to think in this strange way, is beyond the reach of our senses. So the rest of the merry-go-round, though it exists, is beyond the reach of our senses. So now we just have to somehow imagine it. What then is the nature of the reality that we believe in evidentially? So what's the nature of this reality that we believe in by the evidence that is shown to us in this present moment? Transiency is the main reality. It's all changing all the time. We appear to live in an ever-perishing world. It seems that our life is confined to a single instant at a time. We see everything passing away forever, as we say, without having the slightest idea of what we mean by this expression. Where does everything go? Well, you know, if it's the merry-go-round, you know where it's going. It's going around. 
but now we're talking about the world and time, and now we don't know because it's infinite and it's very difficult for us. Where do our lives go? Certainly they're not contained in a space of three dimensions. We witness apparently events, people, and things disappearing into total extinction, into an absolute nothingness as the result of passing time. This is the reality of appearances as registered by our senses. This is the way things look to us. This is our reality. Where's your mother? Where's, yeah, she's gone. Then you may think that somehow her soul exists right now, right? Well, do you think your mother exists? I think so. Yes, so you must somehow think that her soul exists now because that's all you know about is now. There goes with it a particular understanding of life. So this particular understanding of life is the one we have. Interestingly, this is what Ospensky calls our particular consciousness. For all this seeming loss of everything and the fear of losing, the apparent uselessness of so much that we undertake and can't finish, the confused sense of missed opportunities, the feeling of hurrying life, and the thought of the impossibility of going back and altering anything, combine to create one distinct picture of existence and one way of understanding it. This is the one way of understanding it that we have. This is what's particular to us, these sense-based people that we are. This is the sensual picture, and with it are related certain feelings of I, a certain sense of things, a certain interpretation of everything, and a way of taking everything. This seems clear, doesn't it? You take everything based on this way you perceive the world. You take everything based on the way you're perceiving the merry-go-round in this sliver of light called your consciousness, called now. The idea to which we are giving our attention is that time is a truly existing direction, a containing dimension of the world. We think of our world as a ball in space. It is so in a space of three dimensions. Our world is a ball in space, if you take it as three dimensions. And in that fragment of time called this instant, this present moment. So we see it in four dimensions now, once we add this present moment. But what do we see of the fourth dimension? Only this present moment. All the rest of it is absolutely invisible to us and pretty much incomprehensible. But it cannot be so in a space of four dimensions. Thinking of time as a real but invisible direction in which all things have extension, there must be another aspect of everything we see contained in this direction. So it's kind of like, think now, of an iceberg. And all you see is the bit that's sticking above the water. We all know from being told and actually now seeing pictures that the mass of the iceberg is beneath the water, that what sticks up is a very small part. That's similar to this whole idea of time, that it's all there, but we're still not seeing it. So in a sense, it extends, the iceberg or the merry-go-round extends beyond what we can see, beyond this moment, and extends in both directions. The merry-go-round extends in both directions. I wonder how long we're going to do this merry-go-round thing. That just popped into my head while we were doing this. I never really thought of that before. Maybe I did think of that. I don't know. Who knows? Who cares? What's it matter? Whether I thought of it before or I'll think of it in the future, it's here now. And this is... And w did it exist before here now? Yes. Will it exist after here now? Yes. So in a sense, it extends in both directions. From this standpoint, the world does not only exist in the known space of the present moment, but in the dimension of time itself. There is a time world, or a world in time. That is, in a space of more dimensions than our senses record. 
So our senses are only recording this sliver as the merry-go-round goes around. Just this tiny little sliver. That's all we can see. But all the rest of it exists in this other dimension, the one that we cannot see. We touch this higher space at a point. What is that point? Now, very good. That point is this present moment. But outside this momentary point at which a visible world is so brilliantly obvious to sense, there seems, for our natural understanding, to be nothingness, nowhereness, no other space or place or any sort of room for existence. Into this pinpoint of the present, events are entering. The merry-go-round has this coming in now. From which direction are they coming? Following this line of thought, they're coming from the direction of time itself. So they're coming into the present moment from time itself, somewhere that we can't see, time itself, which is moving through us, or we're moving through it, and so producing the illusion of passing time. Now, imagine for a moment, we'll take it the other way. So we have the merry-go-round passing through us. So we're standing here, and the merry-go-round is passing through us, through our world, right? But you can also look at it as the merry-go-round is standing still, and we are moving around it with this light. And we're seeing this, this, okay? But we have no ability to stop it, to stop our movement. Either way you look at it, it's pretty much going to do the same thing. Either we're moving through it or it's moving through us, and so producing the illusion of passing time. So, in order to think of time itself, we have to think of the direction in which events lie, the direction in which the events of yesterday and tomorrow are extended. We have to think of the world not only stretched out in space, but stretched out in the dimension of time in another, a higher space. This really gets murky for us now. Like, how do you imagine a higher space? Poco a poco, say Andalejos. Little by little, you'll be able to do this. Everything, then, that we see in the world now is part of something in the time world. Everything that we see now, all that we see of the merry-go-round in the sliver called now, is part of something else. It's part of the whole merry-go-round. No thing is merely the three-dimensional object in the present moment that it appears to be for our sensual understanding. Our lives are extended events in this higher space. Now, our lives are extended events in this higher space. Now, you are the merry-go-round. Our perceptible existence is one aspect of our existence, a fraction of it. And our usual sense of ourselves, only one particular instance of possible forms of this sense. Your sense of yourself has changed, you must admit. Since you were a child, you had a certain sense of yourself as a child. You have a different sense of yourself when you're 20 and a different sense of yourself when you're 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 and so on and so forth. Where's Robin Williams? We don't know. He seems to have ceased to exist. It's evident that the fitting of higher space over lower space reverses our way of thought. Clearly, the way we're thinking is changed when we think in this way. It relates us to another way of thinking. From its standpoint, the momentum of visible phenomena does not create new phenomena. New phenomena result from the entry of the fourth dimension into the three-dimensional world of our experience. It's not like this part of the horse on the merry-go-round is creating the next part of the horse. It's like it already existed, and now it's just moving into our experience and it'll move right out of our experience, okay? This is a good one. This merry-go-round is a good one. It's, it serves for the moment. It'll probably fall apart as soon as I try and get on the horse. That's almost always how it works. Try and get on the horse, everything changes. The horse moves or whatever. So we can think from the natural sense-given point of view or from an entirely different point of view based on the existence of higher dimensions. 
I don't expect you to be able to think from this whole this whole concept of the merry-go-round thing, but I expect you to be able to touch it from time to time and start to think in a broader sense. One point of view will answer some things. The other is going to answer other things. So we need both. One will relate us to life in one way, which is essential. We've got to have it. We've got to have the way we relate to life now. And the other will relate us to life in another way, in an additional way that gives us standpoints that we could not derive from empirical experience. Empirical experience is what we know through the senses. If we accept higher dimensions, we will understand that truth cannot be one and the same thing in all states of consciousness. Truth to a child and truth to an adult will necessarily be different based on their different states of consciousness. Truth to Jesus Christ or Buddha and truth to you are necessarily going to be different because of the different states of consciousness. So when he speaks of truth, it's not going to make a lot of sense to you. For example, if you have faith, you'll be able to say to this mountain, be lifted up and cast into the sea and it will be done for you. It's like, yeah, right. We like to pretend that we believe that. And I've seen people pretend all kinds of things when it comes to faith. And it's really comical. It's not comical. I mean, it's not amusing. It's not comical in one sense. But then in another sense, it's like, oh, come on. People pretending that they believe something that they don't believe. That's not what faith is. Faith is not people pretending to believe something they don't believe. For example, when I was in ministerial school, dean of the school had been a minister, and he was out in the field before he became the dean of the school. And he told this story. He told lots of stories, but he told this story about Going to the hospital, the family in the church, somebody died, or somebody was in the hospital. He went there, and the person died. But they wanted him to raise the person from the dead, because they believed that he could do that. So he prayed and did all the stuff, and I don't know how many hours, half the night or whatever. And he finally just had to say to him, you know what? This isn't happening. This just isn't working. And that's what I mean by pretending to believe something. If you have faith... Obviously, it doesn't mean if you believe. It must mean something else, and we don't really know what that means because we don't have that higher state of consciousness. Now, clearly, some people do, and they can raise people from the dead. Now, we don't believe that because we can't see it, and we don't do it. Yet, there is enough evidence of it happening throughout the ages that evidence meaning stories, which isn't evidence at all to the empirical mind because it's just stories. But that's the limitation of the sense-based mind, which really, when you think about it, is quite limiting. Now, one will relate us to life in one way, which is essential, the other an additional way that gives standpoints that we can't derive from empirical experience. So there is some way of seeing things that will give us an experience that doesn't come from the senses. And that would be faith. It's an experience that doesn't come from the senses. If we accept higher dimensions, we'll understand that truth can't be one and the same. Something of that relative reality mentioned in the description of Erigena's system will be felt. You remember Erigena, or maybe you won't. Let's try to conceive further how time can be a dimension. Should we really try and conceive further how time should be a dimension? We shouldn't because we're out of time. Where did it go? I have no idea where it went. But it's gone now because time has passed, as it were. And we are going to pick this up next time. Jesus.